Welcome to another edition of the Untoxicated Podcast. I'm Matt Salis, along as always with my wife Sherry. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm well. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited, actually, because we have a guest today. It's not just you and I, I know, yammering I'm on. I'm excited. Um, Jolene Park is here with us. Hi, Jolene. Hi, guys. Happy, happy to be here with you this morning. We're glad to have you. Glad to have you. Jolene and I just met... A couple of, maybe three weeks ago now, I suppose it was, um, Jolene was giving a talk locally here in Denver, and I was in the audience, and I was so impressed with what she had to say and the work that she's done that um, I said, gosh, I'm going to reach out to her and take a shot and see if she'll come and sit down with us. And she's a wonderful, friendly person, it turns out, so here she is. And here we are. Here we are. (laughs) Three weeks later. That's right. Absolutely. Um, well, so what I think we should talk about today, if you're cool with this, ladies, um, I'd like to get some of your history, Jolene, the work that you've done, what's happened in your life in sobriety, the reason for your sobriety, that, that stuff. Um, and then at some point, I'd like to bring it around to relationships, because a lot of our listeners tune in because of the relationship angle that we talk about and not just specifically our relationship, although that's a big part of it, um, but how alcohol has impacts on uh, relationships in general. So hopefully we can come back to that toward the end. Sounds great. Or the second half or whatever. Sounds good. Well, let's start with, if if you would, can you just talk us through a little bit of your story, your your relationship with alcohol and why you quit and what that looked like? Yeah, so I um, publicly identify as a former gray area drinker. Um, I drank in what I call the the gray area where I didn't have, you know, an outward end stage crash and burn. The wheels fell off of my life because of alcohol. Um, You know, I didn't go to a a treatment center or kind of the, the traditional route of quitting drinking um i've been to 12-step meetings but that wasn't kind of a you know a big part of of my stopping process so i didn't have kind of that traditional quit um and on the other side of that spectrum i wasn't kind of an every now and again drinker who could take it or leave it have a glass stop at that one glass and then kind of not think about alcohol or not drink again for weeks or months that wasn't me either Um, But where I was was in the middle of those two extremes, kind of that every now and again and the place where the wheels fall off, um, which I call the, you know, the gray area and have found many, many, many people um, and especially a lot of women today, a lot of women around me, kind of, you know, the book clubs and the suburbia, suburban um, gatherings and that's Salami wine culture. Exactly. Exactly. That, you know, I say to people, I'm like, that's how I drink. I, you know, how you see a lot of women drink today is how I drank. Um, and it, it fit in, but that doesn't mean it was healthy or I wasn't in struggling with it. You know, at 3 a.m. by myself, waking up in the morning, complete dry mouth, feeling nauseous, kind of that mental conversation of like, I, you know, I didn't want to do this again mm-hmm. and I did it again mm-hmm. and then kind of get through that hangover for a couple hours into the morning and the next night often drinking again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was how I drank and have found, you know, many, many, many 
people drink that way and resonate with that. And and once I started kind of speaking out about it, people are saying, I, you know, that's me. Like I function. I didn't have this, you know, rock bottom thing. But it, and we've kind of had this standard in our culture of, you know, that's okay, or that you're not that bad, or right. there's. And when we start talking about it, a lot of people are like. But, you know, I do struggle with this because yeah. I don't like how I feel physically. I'm beating myself up. Things are happening that I don't want to be happening. I wish I didn't have, you know, the fight with the friend or my husband or, you know, and there, there, there are, it doesn't mean because we don't get a DUI right. that things aren't happening because of it. And well, so, and, and you might not get to the rock bottom, whatever that might be, which is individual, right, for different people, but you you still drink more than you want to, right? You, right. You'd like to say, I'm going to have one glass of wine, and that ends up being three or four or a bottle of wine, right? The bottle. And so that, Which, that, right. that regret and that shame, still that's still part of gray area drinking, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and that was, you know, so many, many times. I'm like, I'm just going to open this bottle of wine tonight. I'm just kind of wind down. I'm, you know, making some dinner. I'm going to sit down and watch a show. I'm going to have a glass. Mm-hmm. And then I would have that glass, and I'd be like, screw it. I'm going to have another. And... Because it's just like, oh, uh, you know, I've got that that buzz. I want to keep it going, and then I finish off the bottle, and then feel so physically sick the next day. I was, I just couldn't tolerate alcohol, but I loved the feeling <laughs> those first couple right. hours and that evening before of that. Just it shut my mind off. It, you know, brought the anxiety down. I was able to just kind of downshift and unwind from the day, and I loved that. I hated the next day how I felt, but I just continued. For years, it was really ten years of. Um, there were periods then where I'd say like, "This is it. Like, I'm, I'm going to clean this up, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to stop." And I could stop, and I did stop, and I'd stop for weeks or months, and then I'd say, well, "Why am I doing this? Yeah. I don't need to be so restrictive. I can have a glass of wine." And I'd have a glass of wine, and then I'd say, "Oh, screw it! I'll have another glass." And I'd go right back into that cycle, and even more. You know, each time I stopped and started drinking again, it escalated. And so I got to a point of um, December 14th, 2014, where it was my last drinking day. It wasn't planned, but just, you know, feeling sick until Tuesday. Yeah. Um, saying, I can't, I'm not going to keep doing this Groundhog Day. I've done it so many times for so many years. This is truly it. And um, I'm about a month out from that anniversary, which will be five years of not having a drink. A couple of things that you said that are really interesting to me. Um, first of all, you said that each time that you would go back to it after a period of sobriety, it was it ramped up faster. You were right back where you were. It was worse. That speaks to the progressive nature of, I mean, I know when we talk about gray area, gray area drinking, we don't want to necessarily call that alcoholism, but everyone talks about how alcoholism is a progressive disease. So whether you've tripped that invisible line, you used the word spectrum um, at one point when you were talking a second ago. Wherever you are on that spectrum, it's far, far, far more likely to get worse than it ever is to get any better. Would wouldn't would you agree with that? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And and my view on this has certainly changed. Um, doing the work I do, not drinking now for five years, understanding this and and reading and and being very you know entrenched in in this work. Um, and I know there, you know, there's this whole thing about the, you know, an alcoholic and alcoholism, and, and where's that line? Um, and and I think that's the problem of this polarization mm-hmm. of you're either an alcoholic or you're not. Um, there's nothing lighthearted or cavalier about gray area drinking. Right. Um, I a hundred percent had a problem. 
Um, now, how we want to call that high-functioning alcoholic, you know, alcoholism. I mean, drinking a bottle of wine most nights, I, that, that's a problem, 100%. Um, you know, for me, the labeling, I, I, I don't... Um, well, I, I, I don't away, label myself it? an alcoholic, but I know <clears throat> that if I had a, you know, if I drink again, I know exactly where I'll be very quickly and worse, and I'll be in a world of trouble, and I don't, I don't want to go there. But if you want your story to resonate, and you want to help others that are walking the same path you were on, the label's kind of in the way, isn't it? Because I, th- I think so. There are people that are going to say, yes, I drink a bottle of wine every night, and then I get up for work the next day, or I take care of my kids the next day functioning like we talked about and by removing the label from the discussion you make room for people to identify with you without doing something they don't want to do yeah and that's why i think you know what this conversation and this this um naming of gray area drinking it's opened the door for so many who you know kept saying but i function i'm not that bad i haven't gotten the dui Mm -hmm. i haven't but there hasn't then been a place for but this is a problem, mm-hmm. and um, and something that I've gotten a little bit, you know, much more kind of sore in the sand with um, through five years of not drinking is is really realizing there is no safe or recommended intake level of alcohol. Agreed, yeah. So I always kind of go back to that, uh, you know, because we're always trying to measure the end of what is that definition. But I'm like, let's go to the beginning, and the beginning is there's no safe or recommended level. So when we're drinking, and especially getting drunk from drinking, we're on the spectrum. Yeah. And whatever label we want to give that, um, but yes, it's progressive and it's a slippery slope. And um, yeah, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I just don't, I, I just don't think that there's kind of, you know, this big group out there that gets away with drinking. Yeah. That got that gets the free pass, and then there's another group that doesn't get away with it, and you know, didn't get the the, the ticket. No, it's, it's <laughs> um, Alcohol is a problem, just yeah. plain and simple, and and it's it's a very addictive drug. And everybody that's, you know, using it, and I, and I know that's, you know, and I've gotten, I used to not kind of say that, <laughs> but um, the longer time goes on, it's like, and because also working with people, I mean, mm-hmm. everybody I work with, it's, it's an, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, it's not a glamorous, easy kind of cakewalk. It's, it's a real problem in their lives and they're gray area drinkers. Yes. I'm not doing addiction therapy or counseling and I don't want to be. Right. It's not, uh, it's not something to laugh about, but yet there are plaques in the kitchen, right? And we've got our, our book bag we take to book club that says something about wine on it. And so right. converting the conversation from something that we're laughing about to something serious is really important. It gives people a place to, 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 like I said, to resonate and to say, oh my gosh, this, this really is a real thing. It's, I'm not the only one. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm not sitting here saying everybody needs to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what, what my, um, why I keep speaking about this is that there are enough people out there silently worrying and wondering about their drinking. Yeah. And so that's, um, why I keep talking. I, you know, I'm not preaching to stop drinking. Um, if it's, you know, working and you're, they're probably not leaving listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Those people that's aren't, true. they're not reading the blogs, listening to the podcast. That's fine. But the people who are listening and reading, there's, there's a, a silent question and a struggle. And, and so offering out, you know, kind of an, an entry point with the gray area that it doesn't have to be rock bottom. It doesn't have to be catastrophic. You don't have to prove 
that, oh, I've gotten to this point, now I need to stop. It's You can stop at any point. There's no safer recommended intake of alcohol, and it's okay to say, I'm, I'm done. I think it's interesting when we talk about it as a spectrum. There are different... There are different places that you can relate and different stories that you can relate to on the spectrum. I'm a little further down the road than you. Now, like you, I didn't have a DUI. I didn't have a financial collapse. I didn't, you know, lose my family, thank God. Um, but, but I was further enough along that I've taken the tact of I do call myself an alcoholic and I own the alcoholic label because I feel like by doing that, what I'm trying to do anyway is to take the power out of the stigma. Right. So when it when it was time for me to get help, I, I like you, it's kind of interesting. I spent ten years where I knew this isn't really a good thing anymore. And I and I would have periods of sobriety and then I would relapse and um I just I couldn't don't necessarily know if when you relapsed, if you went even further, like outwardly looking like your relapse then brought on heavier drinking. I feel like you tried to take more control and had stricter guidelines but I think it was like messing with you emotionally a lot more than like your physical it, it was the depression, like the depression and the anxiety got worse that was the only thing like I but, feel like you but know. I also had to exert more and more effort to maintain any semblance of control I mean I won't for a minute say that I was in control right but I but that's when I employed all of the, the rules that we all talk about when we have issues with alcohol oh I'm only going to drink these days of the week mm-hmm. and I'm not going to drink booze anymore only beer and wine and all of them. so yeah. I it, so you, it was progressive in that I had to work really hard to keep it under wraps mm-hmm. toward the end um, but but so that's a good point my I didn't get any closer to looking like a train wreck necessarily mm-hmm. I was probably closer to being a train wreck a couple of years before I quit before I realized how much trouble I was in but the but the whole labeling aspect of it that kept me I mean Alcoholics Anonymous, which I have a, a great deal of respect for now, and, and the work that they've done, and the lives that they saved, millions, literally millions of lives that they've saved, and I have many good friends that are in Alcoholics Anonymous, but the fact is the stigma associated with Alcoholics Anonymous at the time it was time for me to stop drinking is what kept me drinking. Right. I didn't want to go sit in a cold, damp church basement and smoke cigarettes and drink bad coffee and whine about my life. I just was not going to go there. Now, I know that's not what it is now. But that's what I thought it was, and that's what everyone around me thought it was, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have my, like, experience, like, not from drinking, but with AA, getting in trouble with drinking. There was a halfway house that was in the city next to us, and I got in trouble for illegal consumption, even though, in, you know, when I was a minor. And so part of my service was I had to go and clean this halfway house where AA meetings met. And I remember, like, ants and sugar everywhere and nicotine on the paneling. It was so gross. And then I was talking to the counselor once, and he was like, oh, yeah, like, these people will never make it. Like, they, all of these people, they're living here, and they're following the steps, but they're not going to recover. I maybe get one out of 100 people that actually continue with sobriety. So even as, like, a 17-year-old, I was like, wow, that seems pretty damn depressing, you know, that it's not, that there's got to be more than that, than just the community of, of talking about it. Yeah, and... I mean, well, actually, the the place that we met, Jolene, was um, it was a spiritual community in town here called Free in Denver, the south south side of Denver. Um, and it's not a twelve step program, but there's a heavy twelve step influence, and they host twelve step AA meetings all through the week. So 
there's a lot of crossover, and the more we learn, it's not just the nicotine nicotine stained walls and the bad coffee and the cold basements. There's a lot of really great stuff going on there. But that just speaks more to what what you said, the word spectrum. You've got you've got people that are a little worried. They're in the gray area. You've got people like me that I'll own that label and I'll try to destigmatize it. And then you've got people whose lives have been ruined by this this awful thing. Right. Um, and we've all got to find help wherever we can. Right. And, you know, Sherry, I think what you're saying about that that image, I, I think, I mean, culturally, that is the, the stereotype and the image mm-hmm. of AA. And it's, it's, you know, the demographic I work with, the gray area dem- demographic, I coach um, high-achieving professional women. And, you know, their job titles, um, the, the nameplate on the door is impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, over 50% of, of my clients are healthcare practitioners. Really? Um, ner- you know, nurse practitioners and nurses and therapists and physicians, um, PAs. And then, you know, the other half of my practice is women attorneys. Um, they run nonprofits. They're entrepreneurs themselves. And, and so many of them, especially the healthcare practitioners, um, you know, there's that component of I, I'm in kind of a small area, the stigma of going into like an AA meeting or mm-hmm. that perception of what it is, you know, the sticky floor of the, yeah. the coffee and, and, and kind of like it's not my people. And, and, you know, I will say you might be surprised, first of all, who's in those rooms, number one. Absolutely. But number two, it's, it, it is a legitimate, um, you know, Thing, thing as well. So AA founded in the 1930s by a white male who had hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the demographic right now of women drinking is like none other in any other time in history. We've had such an increase of high achieving professional women, um, you know, the suburbs, the mommy juice. And so a, a, a kind of a place from like a white male in the 30s that it doesn't kind of feed the single mom or the, the primary breadwinner female of the family. And so women kind of haven't had, they're like, I don't have a place and I'm not that bad. So I'm just going to keep drinking because, you know, it's what, well, and then what everybody does. Marketing keeps, right. you know, advertising to women with all these, you know, hard fuzzy waters and yeah salt, things seltzer like that. water sugar yeah. we've, we've all learned that sugar's bad for us so what do we do let's yeah. put alcohol in the sugar-free water you, just, you <coughs> right. gotta, yeah, you gotta right. keep, keep so that it's like they just keep marketing that way and making it more glamorous and yeah so i straddle both I, sides of that i you know sitting in community is very healing mm-hmm. for the nervous system that's the work i do nervous system regulation working with the brain working with the body and being in a room with other people from a, regardless of the tenets, the philosophy, like just being with other people face to face is powerful and healing. Um, and so, you know, I can argue that side of it. And, mm-hmm. and there are women's AA meetings and you know groups where it's very. I mean, they're amazing groups. And I also understand the that you know I don't fit into or I don't believe I fit into that stereotype. And then it keeps people drinking mm-hmm. when. They have a problem with drinking, but where do you go? What do you do? And that's what the gray area kind of definition or terminology has opened up for a lot of people. Well, something really cool happened about, I think, correct me if I'm wrong on the timing, but about five-ish years ago, people were in this this void of, I know something's wrong. I'm not going to AA. You You can criticize me if you want for saying that, but I'm not going there for any reason. What do I do? Like you just said... And along came Holly Whitaker and Laura McCowan, and they started a podcast called Home, yeah. 
which just took off, right? Because they were the first people talking about this. And you had the opportunity to be on their podcast. Can you tell us how that kind of came about? Were, were you a listener and you were like, these, these two are great, but I have something to add. Like, is that kind of what happened? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So I was um, a year and a half sober and found them, you know, in kind of that, that second year um, of sobriety. And I was like, the, and what I did was I followed a link from Sarah Heppala, who wrote the book Blackout. Blackout. I, oh, one of my two favorite all-time books. She's such a good writer. Oh, she's so good. And I read her book about, I don't know, nine or ten months into, you know, not drinking and really liked her writing, um, but uh, totally didn't identify. I mean, I, I wasn't a blackout drinker, mm -hmm. um, but I loved her, you know, how she wrote. And so then she posted on her Facebook that she was, she'd been interviewed on podcasts. So I followed that link and it was okay. the home podcast. And, you know, immediately I'm like, who are these women? Like, they are just, this is amazing. I mean, they're just, they're saying what needs to be said. They're edgy. They're, they're pushing the envelope. And. So continued to listen to them kind of through the spring and, and then wrote them, sent an email. And I said, I, I love this. Like, I love what you guys are talking about. Um, and I feel like you're missing, um, you know, there, there's, there's, that you haven't kind of addressed. There's a piece there. And it's the neurochemistry. It's, it's the neurotransmitters in the brain and kind of the, the regulation of our nervous system. And, and I just thought, you know, the email will get lost in the, in the pile, but nothing to lose. I'll just, you know, send it an inquiry. And Holly Whitaker replied and she, she said, we'd love to have you on. We'd love to have you come talk about this. I think that's fascinating. We've had um, Kelly Miller on our podcast. A lot of our listeners are familiar at least a little bit with neurotransmitters and brain chemistry and the subconscious mind and stuff that Annie Grace talks about and all of that. But when I listen to Laura and Holly talk, it's it's emotional, it's somewhat spiritual, it's their experiences, both drinking and after drinking. The fact that you wrote them a email about neurotransmitters and they didn't just push that right aside just blows me away. I mean, it speaks to how smart they are, I guess. Well, and Ho Holly has certainly been, she, she's written about um, the neurotransmitter piece in some of her blogs. She did some amino acid um, therapy when she quit drinking it, and okay. she had written about that. So, I did not know that. Yeah, so I knew that she you know, knew a little, but they hadn't really talked about it. Okay. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to, to share more. And Holly said, we'd love to have you on. So, so what was that experience like? It was great. <laughs> um, it was great. We, we did the initial interview, which is still up. It's called The Craving Brain. Um, it was uh, like October 2016, so people okay. can Google it and find it. Um, and I went on and, and talked about, uh, you know, the, the pyroluria connection of like if our zinc and B6 are low, we can feel more anxious. And if our GABA is low, that's, you know, when we drink, it's that feeling of, of elevated GABA and um, some of the different kind of neuroscience research of stress in the body and how our body, the fight, flight, freeze response. And went through all that. This is the stuff I love to talk about and, and what I teach. And, um, and then I, we finished the interview. And I don't know, a couple days later, or, you know, a day later, I wrote back to Holly and I said, you know, you asked me in the interview why I stopped drinking. And I said, you know, I answered the question, but I, I feel like I kind of quickly jumped around it. And I said, there's really more to that, that answer. And I said, you know, the truth is, it was about relationships and the relation, the romantic, intimate relationship that wasn't working for me. You know, I was, I was running my business and doing very well um, and drinking <laughs> and, you know, successfully working as, you know, an entrepreneur in corporate wellness. 
But the piece that, that wasn't happening was that romantic relationship. And Holly said, this is what needs to be heard. She mm-hmm. says, I identify with this. This is the untold story that's you know even a bigger piece with, with high-achieving professional women and drinking and this um, relationship piece. And you know another big part of it, what I said to Holly and came back and did an addendum talking about it was wanting kids. And um, my drinking really escalated from when I was 38 years old to 43 when I quit, which was kind of that window that just, you know, kind of is that unspoken and very spoken window. If, if you're going to have kids as a woman, naturally, you know, biologically on your own, that's kind of the the, the last window. Right. And, um, and it wasn't like I was day in, day out, kind of walking around like, I want kids and I'm, like, I'm so depressed. But it was it was un you know it was there under the surface and my drinking escalated to manage and, that 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 longing to yeah to deal I, with I was pissed or push it down I was or whatever pissed. I was mad that kind of the guy was you know I didn't want to do it on my own right. that it wasn't happening it wasn't there the relationship and kind of and I you know I had a lot of girlfriends we were the Sex in the City girlfriends going right. out and getting our drinks we're all professionals and kind of that thing and single and like there's just not any available men and there's that. And we would perpetuate that, but it, it, it got to me. And it's like, this sucks. Like, this is not what I had seen happen in my life. I, I wanted to be a mother. And to kind of push that down and soothe that and medicate that. And, you know, there's anger, there's sadness, there's pain. And my drinking really escalated. I wasn't totally that I could kind of consciously... Where? You don't, always like connect, language you don't always connect those yeah. dots. But now I look back on it, yeah. mm-hmm. and I'm like, that was the, you know, and the relationship wasn't happening. And I came back then onto home and told that story and said, this was really kind of what was behind it. And just got to this point of like, to have that relationship that I really want, I can't keep drinking the way I'm drinking because... I was pointing out for you know so long, going oh you know the guy is drinking or the, I keep you know these guys drink too much or they're not available. And it's like three fingers pointing back at me. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge common denominator in this mm-hmm. that you know maybe if I bring, take drinking out of the picture, the relationship that I've always wanted might happen. That's fascinating, and and it went well, right? The, the being on the home podcast, talk about what that did for your your life and your your business well it blew the doors off my coaching business so um you know i think they had at that point like ten thousand downloads a week or something and um women immediately heard uh kind of that that demographic of that high achieving functioning excessive drinker um immediately just filled up my calendar and said this is me and i want to i want to coach with you i'm going to do what you've done and, and stop drinking. And so my coaching practice has, has been full since then. Um, and, you know, then I just did more and more, um, started my own podcast, have done a lot of interviews, have done a TED Talk. So continued to, to talk about this. And each time I talk about it, there's that resonance of, again, I'm, I'm not an addiction therapist. I don't want to be. Um, I'm not a quit therapist, but that I have the ability and capacity to stop drinking and I want coaching now to replenish and nourish my nervous system and my life with these, um, you know, nutritional pieces and wellness pieces and, and pieces that, you know, the body and mind ultimately need that we are trying to use alcohol for, but alcohol is never going to give us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about the TED Talk and this isn't just like in 
ego stroke to to talk about this famous person that we have on on the podcast today. What I think is fascinating is what the, your topics that you talk about and how that results in the success that you've seen because you're very well spoken. I mean, maybe it's just your public speaking ability, but I think it's the topics. I think it's what you're talking about that's driving these people to you. And because you, so you go on home and your practice takes off and then you do this TED talk. And similarly, it, it starts out as a TEDx, right? A local neighborhood. And this thing explodes too, right? <laughs> yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah. So I, I applied the summer of 2017. I just submitted a local application. Anyone can at any time submit their, their idea to a, a TEDx venue. And I did. And kind of the same thing. It's like, what do I have to lose? I'll just, I'm just that kind of person. Like, I'll just send off some cold emails and you never know what will come back. And so same thing. Um, sent it and heard back from the TEDx team. And they said, you know, you've been one we've selected for the November um, TEDx in 2017, I had no speech. I had no, you know. So I um, started writing at kind of the end of September, pretty much, you know, spent a whole month putting it together. It was one of the hardest things I did. I understand why people say book writing is so hard. I feel like I almost, you know, wrote a book yeah. <laughs> to get those those 15 minutes really tight. And and again, I, public speaking is is my background. I worked I've worked in corporate wellness since 2004, so I know how to facilitate and you know um, work with audiences. But a TEDx was like none other. So um, put that together, and it was a, a great experience. And then just this last summer, TED.com, kind of the mothership of of the whole TED speaking picked up my TED Talk after getting over 100,000 views on YouTube, and it's now on the TED.com Over 100,000, wow. that's a big number. Mm-hmm. I think it's 120 right now. Wow, so. that's fabulous. So I have a number of questions. The first one is, when you came out on stage for your TED Talk, did you use the Sex in the City theme song as your walkout <laughs> music? Because that song is like in my head now. Um, I can't even believe you know the sex dun, in the city. Dun, 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 <laughs> that's all I've got going on over HBO and over. Before. No, yeah. but that's a great idea. That's yeah. hilarious. I yeah. Anyway, so uh, I guess that's a no. That's a no. So when I watched your TED Talk, there are, to me, there's two components. There's your um, talking about your gray area drinking, and then there's the more neurological side of, let me tell you what's happening um, to your body and let me talk about neurotransmitters and how they're depleted and how they're regenerated. When that thing exploded, do you have a sense for our people? And I'm, my guess is the neurological side is important for us to learn, but the thing that people are resonating with is the gray area drinking story. Is that why this thing's been watched so many times? I think it's both. Really? I think it's both. I think that it's... Um, it, so everybody has a nervous system. Right. And, you know, and I said to a big thesis of, of my talk that I, I say is that, you know, I think we're really missing the mark right now culturally as a society in the, about this anxiety um, issue. And, mo- you know, a lot of people feel anxiety <clears throat> or feel this dysregulation, feel it's uncomfortable. Something doesn't feel good in my body, it, you know, what's going on in my life. And it doesn't feel good to not feel good. And so I think that universal message connects, whether people connect with alcohol or not, um, that it's that idea of regulating our body, which is where the neuroscience is, mm-hmm. is it's not... Um, it's bottom up. So when we work with the body first and that message travels up the spinal cord to the brain 
And then that's what starts to change the brain. We've approached it um, traditionally kind of the other way of like, if, if I can just talk and myself through this and, and talk myself out of it, then my body will respond. It's the other way. When we're in a stress response, we're an animal brain. Animals don't understand language. When our body is stressed, we're in an animal state mm-hmm. and our brain does not understand language. What our brain understands is sensation. So touch and sound and scent and, um, you know, and that's kind of going into nature brings those kind of the sensory aspect. Um, and I use the, the acronym nourish. And so that's what um, helps to calm the body, which calms the mind, which everybody can resonate with. So there's right. nobody out there that's just like, I just, nothing bothers me and I have no anxiety, whether you drink or not. Right. But then it also touched this, this big kind of unspoken group, which is millions of, I'm drinking I struggle with it silently. I don't talk about it. And, you know, it, it again, it opens that door for You, you for broke down the cognitive dissonance, right? Like, I have anxiety and I drink, but those two aren't related at all. <laughs> right. Well, somebody finally talked about it and said, eh, they might be. They're know? very related. And it's very related in my story. I, you know, I, I've always been um, an anxious person. I was a very anxious kid. And, you know, I've spoken about that many times in interviews as well. And, and I, I didn't drink early on in high school or college. There just wasn't a charge for me around alcohol. I mean, I, I would drink, but I, could, I didn't care. I could take it or leave it. Um, but the anxiety was always there. And so then when, you know, I drank in my late 20s, upset about a breakup, going back to the relationship piece, mm-hmm. that's always been a real integral part of my drinking story. Um, that's when the circuits clicked and, and wired. I was in that grief. I was in that pain and that loss of the relationship. I drank a bottle of wine and I was like, what have I been doing? Why have I not been? This is great. Like this is much quicker and more effective than eating Skittles, which was what I was doing. Um, and then it, it lit up those circuits. And, and my kind of unscientific opinion of this is that any of us, when we drink under a real heightened negative emotional state, and it lights those circuits, It's then that's where it's really hard to ever go back. And most of us drink in, people will talk about, you know, I, I drink to, as like a social lubricant, or yeah. I'm anxious, or I'm, I have social anxiety. And and it, it triggers kind of the wiring in our nervous system to attach them to the alcohol. And it's it's next to impossible, I think, to unattach those circuits. Right. So. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I was, I don't know, just from kind of what you've been talking about and I feel like when you when you present the nutrition piece and the nervous system side it kind of also generates with like this thought process of this is a very intellectual reason why I shouldn't and maybe not so much attachment so you might have some of those people that are more you know intellectually driven and not like emotionally driven that it kind of is a a way for them to be like okay well it's doing all this stuff to my nervous system and my brain so it's really not good and it's kind of like covering up their reason to quit drinking but if it's whatever keeps them from not drinking but I just feel like I can think of people that I know that intellectually if they knew what it was doing yeah and if they read these you know um pieces and listen to podcasts they would they would be more likely to quit rather than it being an emotional especially like for a gray area drinker yeah yeah do you ever find that in your coaching a hundred percent so here's the thing you know the people i work with and and um again this demographic 
people are savvy. Like people read stuff. They, I mean, people know, I mean, they know nutrition. They go to yoga retreats. They're like, people are very well educated and very well versed, first of all. And, and this stuff's actually interesting. Um, it it is. is. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. And, and this is another part of kind of the old school side of things of it's run its course of you're a bad person. Um, self will run riot and a moral character defect. Like right. who I don't want to, who wants to hear that, that you're just doing it wrong yeah. and there's something wrong with you. And, um, and my belief a hundred percent for myself and everyone else is it's like, it's not the psychology first, it's the physiology mm-hmm. and physiology is fascinating and your body's trying to protect you. And in that clench, and if we get stuck in like, we know we brace for when there's stress and, and then we get stuck in, in that flea response or a freeze response. And that's the neuroscience. Like I'm, I'm not, I didn't create this or mm-hmm. make it up. Like it's, it's out there. Right. Bessel van der Kolk and, and Gabor Mate and Peter Levine. And, and those are all, they're coming from the somatic, from the body nervous system standpoint. And people are smart and they get this and they want to have this. It's just, no one's really kind of, you know, presented yeah. it. We've just stayed stuck in, in the older um, archaic stuff of you're the problem and mm-hmm. when you flip it to physiology right. people love that but yeah. why is this like you said that the actual science isn't cutting edge it's been out there for a while but we don't talk about it know about it we don't incorporate it into traditional recovery programs is that because the traditional recovery program is based on a book that was written 80 years ago and there's no there's no funding there's no research going on in alcoholics anonymous or 12 step it is Here's the Bible. We wrote it 80 years ago. Now follow it. Is that why? Like this, this stuff, because I'm with you. I'm with mm-hmm. both of you. This stuff's fascinating when I learn about it. Why doesn't everybody know about this? Why isn't this the why first it, step when you yeah. say, oh, I'm in that gray area. I'm a little worried. You know, man, maybe I, I, I've convinced my wife for 10 years that I drink like everybody else, but maybe I don't. Man, maybe I do drink too much. Why isn't this the first pe- thing that people learn about in place that they go? I don't know. I mean, that's the $64 million question. Yeah. I, I think we, you know, we just kind of go with the momentum. We, um, it's, it's critical thinking. It's, it's doing, you know, reading on your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, again, I, 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 I sit very much on, on the fence with AA. I, I, I'm not a critic of it, but uh, you know, I'm not, I, I don't go to meetings often either. Um, the benefit is being where two or more are gathered. Mm-hmm. Being a Absolutely. Yeah. But the fellowship is powerful. I totally it, am with you. It's, it's a community for your nervous system. And I can, t- we can mm-hmm. talk all about the research on that, the polyvagal nerve and, you know, the vocal. And when we have that eye to eye contact, the mirror neurons, it's powerful. I don't care what the conversation is right. when you're in the room. But the problem is, is it was from in the 1930s and we had none of the neuroscience mm-hmm. in the 1930s. We had, we really had no understanding of, of the physiology and the body the way we do today so it's not that we need to you know completely discard it for me it's incorporate. it's it, incorporate it truly is the body so working with the biochemistry working with the physiology it's the emotions working with the stress the emotional stress response and the energetic um kind of side too you know our habits our patterns um and 
you know, I've always worked with, with a wellness wheel where there's there's 10 spokes, which is relationships, community, the spiritual side, the emotions, the relaxation, um, the leisure. What do you do for fun? Which is often a really hard question for people because we connect alcohol so um, much to fun, relaxation. <laughs> I do that thing you're not yeah. letting me do anymore. That's yeah. what I do for fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. like you would... Like that was a hard thing, I think, for people to find is a replacement for their fun and relaxation time because that would have had a beer or a glass of wine and socializing. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we've, we've, for me, it's a very comprehensive approach of what nourishes us. And we have this narrow definition, eat right and exercise. That's yeah. fine. I mean, of course, eat good food, move your body. But a lot of people eat good food and move their body and they're not healthy. It's the bigger picture. What, how are you nourishing yourself with re- relationships and service and, um, you know, looking at finances and, and all of that goes into nourishing our body. Um, which that we didn't talk about that in the 1930s. And we've had kind of no then training, you know, from that or modeling of how to have fun, how to relax, how to connect with others. But the model and the training is you go to a bar or you go to a bakery. Right. You go get alcohol, you go get sugar. Mm-hmm. And certainly those are options. They're not necessarily, you know, healthy from a real healthy regulation standpoint, but there's, there truly are options. That's the thing. There are resources and people want those resources. Um, to what can you do biochemically? What can you do emotionally? What can you do, you know, community wise? And so that's how I work with people of let's add things in and expand to nourish and give some vital nutrients. And it's not me saying, okay, so, you know, the, the secret is <laughs> take vitamin C or go to yoga. What the secret is, is trying these different things in these different areas and then noticing how your body feels. Pay attention to Pay what attention actually happens. Pay attention to your body. Yeah. Did, uh, did you unclench a little bit? Were you able to take kind of a, a deeper breath? Did your mind slow down a bit where it's not just constantly racing? And if that is the case, then do it again. Repeat it. Because when we have rapport, when we have repetition and we reframe something, that's what changes behavior, not force, facts, or fear. Well, I can see why your practice is going so well. You are very enthusiastic about these topics, and it's just contagious. I can imagine spending time talking about this when it's all new and fresh to someone is just, I bet people after their first conversation with you are just on cloud nine about the potential for what's going to change in their lives. This is fantastic. Well, thank you. And, um, and, and I, I mean, really the bottom line is people, people do want resources. Mm-hmm. People want to know this information. Um, it's just where, where do you go? You know, that, and that's what then gets frustrating, kind of that hopeless feeling. And, and my message is there's so much hope. Mm, um, there's so many options today. We live, you know, my company is called Healthy Discoveries. So we live in a, in a time like none other where there's so many um, healthy discoveries around practitioners and practices and exercises and tools. And um, it's just, you know, what, what I see myself as is kind of the midwife mm-hmm. of, of um, ex- exploration and, and opening the door to these things. And then it's different for everybody. And we don't know until you try it. Um, the body and the mind like variety. We like, and we just haven't had that, but what we've had is alcohol, and that's the problem. Well, and, and the options for recovery exist, as you're talking about the tools. But what I think we get stuck thinking, I know it was the case for me, this is why I had the 10-year period of, of uh, trying to quit and then relapsing and trying again. All I was doing at the time was stopping drinking. Right. That, that was my one and only solution. 
And same thing with our relationship, which we'll talk about in a second. The only thing I, I would say to Sherry all the time, well, there, I quit drinking. Now everything should be fine. We weren't aware at all of the tools. The only tool that we were aware of was the one that scared me and I wasn't going to have anything to do with. And so the idea that there's and, and another concept that gets kicked around a lot in recovery circles is you've got to do the work. And whenever I hear you've got to do the work, my mind, because this is just how I've been programmed for 46 years of my life is, oh, I got to do the 12 steps. Well, there's a lot more to you've got to do the work. There's other things. In my case, what ended up being life-saving for me was bibliotherapy. I read a ton, right? I just read and read and read and read. That was very helpful. Other things too, exercise, nutrition, those are all important components. But when people hear you've got to do the work, it doesn't mean, I mean, the 12 steps, if they work for you, God bless you. And that's wonderful. But it can also be, me, be let's, let's take a look at your nervous system and what, have you, what you've been doing to it and what you can do to fix that. And yeah. listen to the response your body gives when you try something different. One of the things Sherry and I do, we go dancing. We go swing dancing on Sunday nights now. Now listen, we are not trying to enter any swing dance competitions. <laughs> and honestly, if the instructors were were harsh or, you know, if they weren't the awesome people they were, we probably never would have gone back after the first time. But it's a great place to be. And there's movement involved and exercise. And so there's that release and that fun it's also, surprisingly, it's an evening event with all these young people, and there's not booze everywhere. There's a bar downstairs. They could be drinking if they wanted. I have actually no idea why these people aren't drinking. <laughs> I would have been five years ago. Yeah. But there's almost no drinking, and it's just, it feels good. You come back, and then and we'll, when we get home, the kids will always make us dance for them and show them what we learned. Show our little move. And when we do that, it's kind of embarrassing because they're like, that's what you learned? You were there for <laughs> and we're like, two so hours? Because we've done the move. Yeah, but for us but too, I think it was. Good. And you were talking about this earlier in our conversation about like eye contact and how alcohol disconnects you from that person, and so much of our relationship had been this disconnect. And um, so, like the the fact that I he's the lead and I'm the follow, and we have to work together and pair together, and the physical touch, even though it's not a sexual physical touch, but the hand holding and. Um, you know, the eye contact and I have to anticipate what his new move is going to be. Um, it's, I think that's kind of helped our relationship because we really miss that for a lot of our marriage. So that's another reason I feel like that. I just said, I want us to, I want us, I want you to stop moping around about not drinking anymore. And I want us to start having more fun. And so that's what we kind of did, but that it's really added a lot more. And I was really, really impressed when you said, like, the eye contact and, the you know, how you can't have a real relationship when alcohol is there and present. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, that, that kind of brings us back around. That's a good point. You talked about the fact that the reason that you quit was really relationship reasons. One of the things that I think is fascinating, the further along this path I go, the more I realize, you know, societally, we've kind of got this problem that... Most relationships, not relationships that end in addiction or even gray area drinking, most relationships start over a glass of wine or a beer or the first three or four dates are dinner or some other social event where there's drinking involved. And it fascinates me to think about how how do we form healthy relationships, whether we are a problem drinker or not a problem drinker, when the alcohol is always there and in the way. Did you, when you were in that, age range that you talked about late 30s early 40s and it wasn't happening romantically yet 
I imagine every date that you went on started with a glass of wine, right? Absolutely. So when you took that out of the way, what changed? Well, I'm in the best relationship I've ever been in right now. All right. So there's so there was that change. Yes. <laughs> um, and you know, also I I stopped dating. I stopped drinking and I stopped dating. And um, I was angry, and I was just kind of like, I get maybe this is just it. You know, maybe I'm just not meant to be partnered. And I'm I'm kind of accepting that. And I'm not really going to try. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so there was that. And, you know, and there was that pissosity and, and anger. Um, and, but I needed that. I needed that space and that time to just. But at the time, I bet it was. Too, the, right? Like kind of feel like yeah. yourself. And, yeah. And, and I, I really, I was at such a point of surrender that I really didn't look at it like, you know, I'm missing out or, you know, poor me. Or I'm just like, you know what? I guess this is just it. Really? And yeah. And, and it was, I look back on it and it was a surrender that was needed Yeah. <laughs> because then how the relationship came in that, that I'm in, we've known each other all my life. We went to school together since, since fifth grade. Oh, wow. So, um, I've known him, but it's like how, you know, anybody like you go to school with people and it's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I know him, but it, there's no kind of charge or you just mm-hmm. like, whatever, you know, but once I stopped drinking, I could see him. Hmm. And there was, and I really think, you know, continuing to drink and, and we met, we met again at our 25th high school reunion, which was the, I was still drinking. I, so it was that August I was drinking and I quit drinking in December. Um, and we met and we, we both noticed each other. We interacted. We were both kind of like, huh, there's, you know, but I shot it down. He followed up with me and I just kind of, kind of blew off the text and I wasn't available. So this is the whole irony of, you know, I'm like these unavailable men. Yeah. <laughs> and you were- I was not available to be in, in that type of relationship. And then two and a half years later, he randomly The 27th me. Uh, high school reunion? <laughs> not, not the reunion. He just randomly te- texted me one mm-hmm. summer morning. It was really random. Like, it was kind of a butt dial text. And people were like, oh, come on. <laughs> he and I talk about it all the time. It's like, no, no, no. I mean, he... he Truly, his phone just butt dialed. The universe, the divine universe intervention, whatever like, you want to call it. Oh my it. god! Like you guys aren't going to talk, so we'll just make the call. Yeah. Um, oh, you're you're and, not getting any younger people. Yeah, Come on. yeah. And he hadn't been dating. He was kind of the same. Um, you know, he didn't get married either. Wanted kids very much, and was in the same three, four years. Like screw it. If if you know, I meet somebody, I meet them, but I'm not really trying. So we were both in that place, but knew each other. And then started texting, and I said, you know, I'm getting ready to go to, to London. He's like, oh, have you ever read this book? And I, my, my head kind of spun around. I'm like, wait a minute, you read books about English history? Like, I love London. And a, a promise I had made um, when I quit drinking, I'm like, what am I doing? I, I'm not paying for kids in soccer leagues, and, in the, and I love England, and I haven't been back for 20 years. I lived there after college. I'm like... I don't drink anymore. I'm going to go back to London once a year. So I had been doing that. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm getting ready to go. And he's like, well, I love this, this book. And I'm like, you love English history. And that was our, I had no idea. And it's, it's a huge bond of ours that just this similar interest with, with England. And so for a whole year, it was platonic. And we just, we talked a lot about British Kings and Queens and got together and had dinner and it was a platon and it was you and we weren't drinking because he he he'll drink with his friends but he doesn't drink you know he's like I can take it or you know doesn't need to drink when we're together so I had this whole 
platonic kind of, and we weren't thinking we're dating, because then I'd get kind of annoyed. I'm like, well, I haven't heard from him for three months. I guess I haven't. But it was just platonic, and we got to know each other and built a, a sober foundation, mm-hmm. kind of, un, you know, it wasn't like a conscious, this is what we're doing. And a year later, started dating. That's the best relationship that I'm in. That's fabulous. Been in. That's, congratulations. Thank you. That's fa- British kings and queens. Who would have thought? I, I, know, who would have thought? And we still, to, today, we still, we just took a, um, our second trip. He came and met me last year. We took a, another trip last month together back to England and Scotland and still, you know, talk about it and we read and it's, it's a big, it's a big connection for us that we really bond on. And, you know, plus I love the guy and, and, you know, he's, he's amazing, but, but it is that connection. And we actually want to take ballroom dance lessons. We were looking at that this winter. So dancing, partner dancing, there's um, so much nervous system regulation and it's, it's a healing healing movement practice well and until you figure that out you should drop into the mercury cafe on sunday nights and do a little swing dancing with us and you know maybe that'll lead to your ball these guys have lots of contacts they can help you all right well maybe we'll we'll see you guys there so on so on the topic of relationships because a lot of our listeners that's what they tune in to listen to your relationship story is fascinating and one that was a only able to happen after you had cleaned the wine out of your life really and opened your eyes and made you available what's your experience with maybe people in your practice because you talk to a lot of gray area drinkers that leave the wine behind and they're already in relationships now that's the situation sherry and i were in we were we were already married the relationship had wreaked all kinds of havoc and then or pardon me the alcohol had wreaked all kinds of havoc in the relationship and then the alcohol also kind of covered up the damage because we were just kind of hanging on by our fingernails and trying to survive. We weren't in any position to work on anything. And then I got sober and we realized, holy cow, we're in trouble and we got a lot of stuff to figure out. When a gray area drinker, you said primarily women, not all, but primarily women that you work with, they come to you and they've they've just made the decision to stop drinking. Their spouse maybe hasn't. That's a that's a challenge, is it not, for that, that your clients face and... That's got to be something that you spend a fair bit of time talking with them about. Am I right? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's um, it's one of the biggest things I, I talk with clients about. Um, either that, you know, the, the intimate relationship that they're in, or the the kind of social relationship of how you know those dynamics sure. now of people in their life. So yeah, it's the number one kind of thing in coaching. And again, I'm not a relationship therapist. Right, right. <laughs> um, so some of it is, you know, referring to a relationship therapist. Sure. Um, that's part, you know, coaching is I'm resourcing um, and there for kind of accountability, for follow through on mm-hmm. the resources. So, um, you know, some of it I think early on is staying in your own lane. Um, you know, when I talk with clients, of I've seen so many different scenarios, but you just kind of never know how things will unfold. And we just kind of need to let them unfold. Um, I've, see, I've seen a lot of partners who, you know, are, are big drinkers. And then their partner who's working with me and coaching stops drinking. And the partner just kind of organically on their own. It, sometimes it's not even big conversations. Hmm. But just you, you see it. You see the change. And so then they kind of back away from, you know, not drinking as heavily. And so as they much. like what they see in their partner. Uh, they, that person's figuring something out. I might want to mm-hmm. try this too. And they're like, well, I don't need to be drinking all the time either. And and it's not uh, sometimes, you know, a real difficult process. They just, 
um, you know, really cut back on their drinking. Some quit altogether. Um, and then there, you know, can be some where it's more of a headbutting and, um, and one continues to drink really heavily when one isn't drinking, that can be, that can be a bit of a struggle. And certainly where I refer out to, you know, potentially a good relationship counselor and, you know, the person not drinking, continuing to stay in their own lane. Um, I don't call it kind of, you know, doing your own work because that feels so heavy. Right. <laughs> but, um, but staying in that lane of, of what is it that you are adding in, that you're adding your own vibrancy and expansion in your life. And, um, again, by witnessing and sometimes by default, when the partner sees that, they ante up and, and, and you know, things balance that way as well. So. Yeah. I, I think that's... I think the, the point that I want to make is, and you see it in your practice, and it's it's a common enough occurrence that you had three or four answers right away ready. Stay in your lane. I sometimes have to refer to therapy. It, this is a common thing, right? I think I want the listeners to hear that when there's alcohol in the relationship, whether it was in the relationship to begin with or got worse as the years went by or whatever, and then the alcohol's out, there's a wound that needs healing from an intimate relationship standpoint one way or the other. And that's that's something that you see and it's got to be dealt with. It can't be ignored. Oh, I see it all the time. Yeah. Um, and we were saying before we started recording, you know, there's there's kind of, there's three questions that are things that I'm looking for, um, you know, when I will work with somebody or not. Um, and that's one of the questions. Yeah. I'm curious about, is there... Um, you know, par- partner in your life right now or not, and it's not good or bad either way. But I'm just curious what that dynamic is, and if there's a partner, um, is there a level of support? You know, how are they with you stopping drinking right now? Or are they? And and it's yeah, it's a piece. And you know, to, to take this a little a little different road as well, which can be a little heavier, but um, but I'm certainly very aware of and and um, don't want to skim over is is the trauma piece. Um, you know, and I start there with clients of, uh, you know, when we work together, of just kind of let's start from the beginning of when did you start drinking? Kind of mm-hmm. what's your timeline? What are kind of some mile markers from, from that place up to today? Um, and I'm curious about hearing, you know, kind of, kind of early on, um, we model our relationships from primary, our primary relationships, you know, caregivers. And, and so sure. what was happening there or not happening there? Because we pick partners then that we continue, you know, some of some of that process. And and um, again, it's it's heavy, but I, I mean, I can't ignore it. I, I mean, the Me Too movement, the fact that one in four women have history of sexual violation or sexual assault mm-hmm. or um, and medicating then with alcohol to kind of um, buffer and, and brace ourselves and, and medicating that pain and then being in relationships. So there are these heavy dynamics sure. that it, it's not always, um, you know, the current relationship and, and the dynamic from Tuesday. Mm-hmm. It's even earlier of what has been wired in the nervous system, the expectation from a relationship that will happen or won't happen. And that's often where the alcohol starts and then we pick relationships the way we do. That's therapy. That's, um, you know, working with kind of a trauma informed approach and um gabber mate one of my real favorite um teachers he's he's a medical doctor and he wrote in the realm of of hungry ghosts and um really brilliant and kind of this this neuroscience piece he'll say it's not always sometimes what happened to us but it can also be what didn't happen 
to mm-hmm. us. And, you know, and I feel that can, that is a bit of my story of the, just some abandonment and rejection. And so it wasn't that, you know, there was necessarily assault or, or um, abuse um, in some ways, but abandonment's huge. And it's so psychic, common, too. It's so common. Yeah. And, and lost. And, and I hear that in stories of, and that's what I'm looking for, where, you know, often, you know, when there's like the miscarriage, um, the loss of the child, or like for me, of never having the child, or the divorce, or, you know, uh, the relationship that, that walked out, which was also my case in my early <laughs> 20s. And, and it, it, it impacts the nervous system immediately. And all we're trying to do is regulate that. It, you know, it doesn't feel good to not feel good. Right. And that's the, the, it's like we all can identify with this. So it's like sometimes it's not just, oh, you know, we just have this habit of drinking and it's this social thing to do. The reality is we, we all have a level of something happened or something didn't happen. And it's still triggered in our nervous system. And we pick partners to try to heal that. If you live long enough, you've got some baggage that you're carrying around. We all have it. And we all have I think it. And that's that why that lines I... up so well with with the kind of the age range where people start to have trouble with drinking that is also lined up with where you start to realize the stuff that hasn't gone well in your life and it starts to eat at you and gnaw on you. Absolutely. And that's why I don't like these categories of alcoholic or non-alcoholic. Sure. It's too simplistic. It's too reductionistic. The, the point, I mean, the bottom line is we're all human. We all have nervous systems. And we've all had levels of emotional pain. And again, Gabor Mate says, he says, it's not, a, it's not about the addiction. It's, you know, not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yeah. And get to the root cause, right? Get to the, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm aware of that. That's also a fascinating piece to me, but I see it as very hopeful. I don't see it as like, oh, well, I have trauma, so now it's hopeless, and I'm going to just shut, shut off this recording and feel bad about myself. Um, the hope with it is all the neuroplasticity that can change and how community can rewire our nervous system and how things like dancing and certain movement. And eye contact. Right. It's it's not just go to yoga because I should go to yoga because it sounds good and it's like the healthy trendy thing. It's like, no, it actually raises your GABA if it feels good to you. If you don't like mm-hmm. yoga, don't go. <laughs> right. But th- that's where the rubber meets the road with these wellness practices. Uh, there's so much hope um, and so many resources and options. Well, speaking of resources and options, what a great transition. Jolene, we'll be sure to link on our Untoxicated Podcast website to to your um, Healthy Discoveries website, your your practice. And then we'll also, since we talked so much about them, we'll link to the Home Cod Podcast episode that you were on and then also the, the TED Talk that you did for sure so our listeners can go to our Untoxicated Podcast and learn more about you. Sounds great. Well, and so Gray Area Drinkers as well. I have two websites. Okay. Healthy Discoveries is kind yes. of my name. GrayAreaDrinkers.com also. Yeah, yeah. Yes. People can find all the info on, on either one of those sites. Outstanding. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. For my wife and co-host, Sherry Salis, this, I'm Matt Salis, and this has been the Untoxicated Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Jolene Park, and thanks to you for listening.